Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, open them to Leviticus. If you are new or you've just joined us, we are going through the Bible, reading through the Bible together. I'm giving you, we are giving you some notes just to put in a notebook uh, and a Bible reading plan. Now I'm going to tell you, we've bitten off a big chunk today, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know what we were thinking. Obviously we weren't. So I, I'm going to do. I'm going to have to do something a little bit differently today. I'm going to have to stick a little closer to my notes, just for the sake of time. And I'm not going to try to bore you, but I've got a lot of information I want to share with you. So I'm going to stick close because I, I just don't have a. Well, you'll understand. Someone said that we're going to pass through the greatest, the most gigantic dust storm in history when all church members dust off their Bibles at the same time. How long, how long does it take to read from Genesis to Revelation? Well, if you read it at standard pulpit speed, slow enough to be heard and understood, the reading time would be 71 hours. If you break that down into minutes and divide it by 365, it'd take you 12 minutes a day to read through the Bible. And so I hope that you're reading through the Bible. When you're discussing favorite books of the Bible with people, Many of you like Romans, some of you like John, some of you like Revelation. I doubt seriously anybody in here would raise their hand and say, my favorite book is Leviticus. <laughs> because when you start reading through the Bible, you get to Leviticus and you get bogged down. And then when you get to Numbers, to all the begats, you put your Bible back up on the shelf. Say, forget this. But I want you to know that Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy point to Jesus. My goal is to show you Jesus in all the books of the Bible. Now, he's not going to be listed by name, but you're going to see him represented or Jesus is going to fulfill what is represented, and that's no, there's no exception to that today. So I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 16, and while we're turning there, let me give you just a, a, a couple of minute overview. You can break it down, you can break Leviticus down into two sections. The first 17 chapters talk about sacrifice. The last chapters, 18 to 27, talk about separation and God's people being different from the world around them. Now, in part one, the first 17 chapters, you've got the offerings that are shown in the first seven chapters. There's some sin offerings and there's some thank you offerings. We call them thank you God offerings and I'm sorry God offerings. The first three are thank you offerings. And because of that, they're voluntary. Now, the last two offerings, the sin offerings, they are prescribed. They are commanded. They're not voluntary. When you get to chapters 8 to 10, you find a focus on the priesthood. You'll find it interesting that when, God, when Moses ordained the priest, that there were some strict rules they had. You're going to find out that Aaron's sons disobeyed and they died because of it. And then when you get to chapters 11 through 17, it relates to the ceremonial cleanliness before as they begin to worship. 
Now, the walk with God begins in chapter 18 to 27, and you have all of these weird, not weird, different kinds of rules, different kinds of regulations, because God is separating his people from all of the pagans around them. He said, you're going to be different. And so there's a lot of rules and regulations because God really gave them three sets of laws. He gave them the ceremonial laws to worship. He gave them the national laws as a people of Israel, and he gave them the moral law. And the national and ceremonial laws aren't really in effect as much today, but the moral law is still in effect, obviously, until the end of time. So with that in mind, the part two, it talks about the lifestyle of God's people in chapters 18 to 20. It talks about the regulation of the priests in chapters 21 to 22. Then he gets to those feasts, all kinds of feasts that they observe. And they're chapters 23 to 25. And then at the end of Leviticus, you find the blessings and punishment, 26 and 27. God says, if you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do this, you're going to be punished. Kind of like your parents. If you do this, you're going to be blessed. If you don't, you're going to get punished. So with that in mind, I want to focus on chapter 16 that talks about the high priest and the day of atonement. I'm not going to read chapter 16. I don't have enough time. But I want to call your attention to it because the Jewish people held one day to be more holy and so crucial that they simply called it Yoma, the day. The day, the day where the entire sacrificial system culminated in the ceremonies on this day, the day of atonement. Now, the very thought of having God who is perfect and holy come down and have a relationship with sinful man is a mind-boggling thing. And when you think of the word atonement, you can break down the syllables at one meant, at one meant with God. Sometimes the word is translated to wipe out or to erase or to cover. It's often translated forgive or pardon and purge. God was making it possible for man to have a relationship with him or to at least be at one mint with him. Now, all of this was leading up to what Jesus finally did on the cross. And as we look at chapter 16, I want to give you the meticulous preparation that the high priest went through. A week beforehand, the high priest was put into seclusion. He was taken from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Obviously, in Leviticus, they have a tabernacle, but in the temple was built, there were some chambers in the side temple. They many times would put him in one of those chambers. Why would he be secluded? Why would he be taken from his home? So that he would not accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. In fact, they actually had somebody appointed to be a substitute if he messed up. Clean food was brought to him and he would wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he stayed up all night praying, reading the Torah, preparing himself spiritually. If he fell asleep, the young priest would wake him up, sometimes, require, or sometimes reciting the Psalms. Sometimes they would make the high priest stand up all night on a cold stone floor. On the day of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, he bathed head to toe, and dressed in pure white linen. 
Only on the day of atonement would the high priest wear the white garments, the tunic, the belt, the turban, the pants. And it signified that the high priest came before God within the most holy place, humbly and simply. He did not come with the outward garb that he always wore that was colorful and had all the stones and rich colors, but he came in pure white because white is the color of forgiveness. He came out and stood before the people. He walked over to a young bull and stood between the temple porch and the great bronze altar leading up to the Holy of Holies. And standing toward the east, that is the worshipers, he turned the head of the bull towards the west to face the sanctuary. He laid both his hands on the head of the bull. He prayed for himself and for his family a prayer of confession. The high priest then walked over to two identical goats. He cast a lot to choose which of the two goats was for Jehovah, and the other, a scapegoat, would bear the collective sins of the people. The scapegoat was now turned towards the people and stood facing them, waiting, as it were, till their sins should be laid on him. The high priest now once more returned towards the sanctuary and once again laid his two hands on the same bull which stood between the porch and the altar. Once again, the high priest prayed a prayer of confession over the bull, this time for himself, his family, and also the priesthood. The young bull was then slaughtered and its blood collected in a basin for later use, and there was an attendant received the basin and kept it stirring so that the blood would not coagulate. The high priest walked up the ramp to the altar, filled a gold censer with coals, hot coals, and a golden ladle with incense. Then with everyone watching, he walked into the most holy of holies. He had to walk around the curtain. And by the way, this was no shower curtain. This curtain was anywhere from 18 to 36 inches thick. There was no middle to it. He had to walk around it. With everyone watching, he walked into the most holy of holies. The veil was folded back. The high priest stood alone and separated from the people outside. He placed the censer between the staves of the ark and he carefully put incense into his hand and threw it on the coals of the censer. He waited for the smoke to fill the most holy place in other words, to shield him from the presence of God. And if all went well, he emerged unscathed from the inner sanctuary. He, then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice to God to atone or pay the penalty for his own sins. After that, he came out and bathed completely again. A new white linen was put on him. The high priest took from the attendant who kept it stirring the blood of the bullock. Once more, he entered into the most holy place and he sprinkled with his finger once upwards towards the mercy seat and seven times downwards, sacrificing for the sins of the priest. Coming out of the most holy place, the high priest now placed the basin of blood before the veil. Next, the remaining goat was slaughtered. The high priest then entered the most holy place the third time and sprinkled as before once upwards and seven times downwards. He then came out and again placed the basin with the blood of the goat before the veil. 
He would come out a third time and he would bathe again from head to toe. They dressed him in a brand new pure white linen and then he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of the people. Now he took the basin with the bullock's blood. He sprinkled it once upwards and seven times towards the veil outside the most holy place and he did the same with the blood of the goats. Finally, he poured the blood of the bull in the basin containing the blood of the goat, mixed it back and forth, and the two were thoroughly mixed together. He then sprinkled each of the horns of the altar of incense and seven times on top of the altar of incense. Then he took the remaining blood outside of the inner court, poured out on the west side of the base of the altar of burnt offering. Now the high priest had cleansed the sanctuary in all its parts, the most holy of holies, the veil, the holy place, the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering. All this while the scapegoat was facing the people. He then went to that scapegoat, laid both his hands on the head of the goat, and confessed and pleaded for all the people. The scapegoat was then led through the temple's east gate to a waiting priest whose job was to take it to a predetermined spot 10 or 12 miles away. Along the way, there were 10 stations with food or drink in the case in case the tired priest needed to break his fast. When the priest came to the final station, he pushed the goat off the cliff. Using a system of signal flags, the priest leading the animal would message back to the temple that the sins of the people were forgiven. You don't have to look too closely to see the fingerprints of Jesus all over this. Because when you read through the the events of the Passion Week leading up to Easter, you'll see Jesus staging his own day of atonement. Just like the high priest, Jesus began to prepare a week beforehand. And like the high priest, the night before the sacrifice, he stayed up all night. But he wasn't clothed in rich garments like the Jewish high priest. He was stripped of the only garment he had. And instead of being cheered by the people like the high priest was, he was jeered by the people and abandoned by nearly everyone he loved. He was not bathing in a purifying pool like the high priest. He was bathed in human spit. And when he came before God, he didn't receive words of encouragement. He felt the Father's face turn away. He was struck dead even though he had no defilement on him. And when he breathed his last breath and said, it is finished, the temple itself responded. Because that thick curtain in front of the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. The symbol of God's separation of humanity was torn in two. For the first time in history, the way to God was wide open. Now, I want to read out of Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. It's a little smoother to read, but I want you to listen to what it says. And by the way, Leviticus 16 tells us that when Aaron finished, he took off his linen. Now, when Peter and John ran to the tomb after the resurrection, what did they find in the tomb? Because the job had been finished, he left the linens laying there. 
After reminding us of the Old Testament system, the author of Hebrews puts this this way in chapter nine. Listen carefully. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands. It is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity Just think of how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. In verse 22, it says, In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everyone was purified with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. You see Jesus in Leviticus. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he said to his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. First John 1, 7 reminds us that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 10, 19, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Folks, Jesus is our high priest. We come to God through Jesus. No man on this earth. Through Jesus. We don't go through an earthly priest. We go, we are the priesthood. We go through God through Jesus Christ. He has made us priests through His Spirit. Okay, let's go to Numbers. Open your Bibles to to Numbers chapter 24, but let me tell you a little bit about Numbers first. The purpose of numbers is historical, not hysterical. It's a record. It's a record of the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, actually 38 months, 
38 years and nine months is what's covered in Numbers because of their sin, their unbelief, Numbers 14. And so you find a record, the structure. You find the old generation, chapters 1 through 14. And, and then in chapters 15 to 20, you find the wilderness and the Baptists. Because they're whining the whole time. That's my, that's my interpretation. Whining, whining, whining. You ever tell your kids quit whining? I'm sure God's good. Quit your whining. And then the new generations, chapters 21 to 36. Now, when you get to numbers and you start reading all those baguettes, you can get broken down a little bit. You say, man, man, man. I'm reminded of the, the little girl who, the, when you read those children's letters to God, her name was Alice, and she said, dear God, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? Nobody will tell me. <laughs> well, if you don't know what begat means, ask your parents. You find Jesus all over the place in Numbers. He is the perfect Nazarite, chapter 6. You find he's Aaron's rod that budded in chapter 16 and 17. And in chapter 21, you, you find the murmuring Israelites and God is about fed up with it and he allows serpents to come and bite the people. And Moses intercedes and, and, and he says, he tells Moses, you make a bronze serpent, you put it on a pole and you lift it up and everybody that looks on that serpent will be healed and saved. Well, did you know that that's quoted in John? You know John 3.16, don't you? So I'm not gonna quote it, but do you know John 14? It's gonna be John 3.14 and John 3.15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, verse 16. So the serpent is the ugliest and the deadliest symbol of sin. And Jesus became sin when he died on the cross. So you see Jesus all through the book of Numbers, but I want to focus on one prophetic statement that you find in Numbers 24, 17, and I need to give you the background of this one. There are two men that, whose names begin with B. Balak, who's the king of the Moabites, he's a pagan. But he sees all the Israelites moving into the land and he's afraid. So he calls on Balaam, who's a prophet of God, because he knows that if, if he says, he tells Balaam, when you bless, when you put a blessing on somebody, they are blessed. And when you put a curse on somebody, they are cursed. And so he, Balak asked Balaam, come over and curse Israel. And Balaam seeks God. And God says, no, don't do that. But Balak raises the ante and says, listen, I'll give you even more. I'm loosely, loosely paraphrasing this. You'll read it yourself. He said, I'll give you even more and more prestige if you'll come. And Balaam decides to go. And on the way, he's riding his donkey. And God's going to kill him. Sends an angel of the, of the Lord there with a sword and the donkey sees him. And he stops and Balaam beats his donkey and, 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 and heads another direction and, then, and, the, and, the, and the donkey sees the angel of the Lord again and stops. And Balaam beats him again and does it a third time. And finally the donkey says, why are you beating me? Talks. 
which by the way, gives me hope. If God can speak through Balaam's donkey, he can speak through me. <laughs> but, and then he opens his, God opens his eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord and realizes his donkey saved his life. And Balaam is humbled and, and God says, you better speak what I tell you to speak. So he winds up going to Balak Balak, the king of the Moabites, wants him to curse Israel, takes him up to a place where he can see all the children of Israel. And the first thing that Balaam does is bless them. It, makes, it just chaps off Balak. And he takes him to another spot. And he said, I'm going to give you another chance. Here's another view. Maybe you'll change your mind. And this time, Balaam blesses Israel again. And this really makes him mad. And he takes him to a third place. And Balaam even gives a greater blessing. And part of that greater blessing is Numbers 24, 17. I want you to look at this prophetic statement about Jesus. Stay with me. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. I see him, but not now. That's a prophetic vision of Jesus. Out of Jacob, he's a man. It was reflected in the masculine pronoun. He's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A star, symbolically, a star could, it's actually used in Isaiah 13, 10, and Isaiah 14, 12 as a metaphor for regal kingly power, but most of the time it's used for illumination. Jesus is portrayed prophetically as a great light for the illumination of humanity in Isaiah 9 and Matthew 4. He claims to be the light of the world in John 8, 12. And listen what John calls him in the book of Revelation 22, 16, the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Now the word scepter reveals Jacob's offspring will not only be a light, but a royal figure as well. The scepter is the symbol of a ruler's power. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 45 by saying, your throne is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Lord Jesus is depicted as a ruler. He is the coming king. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 25 says Jesus is already reigning. Let me tell you something. He's the king of kings. And Lord of lords, I, I, this is just one spot in numbers that you find him. I wanted you to see that. And now, let's go to Deuteronomy. Now, when you read Deuteronomy, you're going to say, boy, this is a repeat of Exodus. Yeah, you got a new generation going into the promised land. And so Moses gives the second law, renews the covenant. In fact, you can break it down. In part one, he, re he reviews the past in the first four chapters. Then in the chapters five through 26, he restates the law to this new generation he renews the covenant in chapters 27 to 30, and then he reaches the end in chapters 31 to 34. I want you to focus in chapter 18 for just a second. I'm fully aware of what time it is. I'm descending. We've started our descent. <laughs> if 
you've ever flown on a plane, you know what that means. But I want you to see something. This is Moses talking in verse 15. He's quoting what God has told him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. Now look at verse 18, 17. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I want you to see that he's a prophet like Moses. The Jewish people regarded Moses as the greatest prophet of all time. All other prophets heard God speaking in dreams and visions, but in Numbers 12, God said, I speak to Moses directly, face to face. So Moses, uh, he, he was the most respected of the Old Testament prophets because he could actually talk to God. He was the lawgiver, the emancipator of Israel, the worker of miracles. He commanded the Israelites to watch for this coming prophet, a prophet that would resemble Moses. Now, the one's coming is going to supersede him, going to be better than him. But, but how, how is Jesus like Moses? A prophet like unto Moses. Ada Haberson, in a book called The Study of Types, lists 67 types and 13 contrasts between Moses and Christ. But let me just run through a few of them. How, how are Jesus and Moses alike? They were both Israelites. They were both shepherds. Jesus, the shepherd of souls. Moses was a shepherd of fields. Moses and Jesus were both saviors of their people. Moses and Jesus fasted for 40 days. Moses and Jesus were both born at a time when evil kings pronounced death to all Jewish baby boys in the area. They were both, they both gave up royal positions to save their people. They both performed miracles. They both were called out of Egypt. Both were rejected by their brethren. Both made the sea obey them. Both had people who wanted to stone them. Both of them departed a blessing to Israel or gave a departing, gave a parting blessing to Israel. So that's just a few. So I want to call your attention to something that you may have never noticed in the book of John. If you want to turn there, I want you to turn to John chapter one. And I want you to notice something in chapter one. This is John the Baptist, about John the Baptist, verse 19. It says, now this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Now, look over at chapter, look at verse 43 of chapter one. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have, found of, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, 
Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, you come and see. Now, turn over to chapter 6, verse 14. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And in verse 14, listen to what it says. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And then in Acts chapter 7, right before they stoned Stephen, in his sermon before they stoned him, in verse 37, this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now, why am I making a big deal about this? There's a group of people on earth who say that God is Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, I'm not being ugly, but Muhammad has nothing in common with Moses. He's not God's prophet. Jesus is the one who came to reveal the Son to God to us. So in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you find Jesus is the high priest. You find Jesus is the king. You find Jesus is the prophet. We do it in a different order. We say the prophet, priest, and king. Folks, Jesus is who he says he is. He's been prophesied through the ages, and as you read through these books of the Bible, I want you to see that Jesus is a fulfillment of all of this stuff, that the Old Testament has this thread of redemption that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And I say all of that to say that if you don't know Jesus, you don't have salvation. You don't know God. You can't get to God. I feel so sorry for people who are trying to earn their way to God. They think, I'm gonna do my best, and if I do, if I do more good than I do evil, then maybe when I get to the judgment, then my good will outweigh my evil, and God will let me in. Let me tell you, Jesus has taken care of all of that. He's paid for it. Even your good stuff, is as filthy rags compared to the holiness of God. Let me tell you something. You start reading Leviticus, it's a bloody book. Nobody likes to see blood. Freaks some people out when they see blood. Why do you think God had it that way? Because he wanted you to see the seriousness of sin. Because of your sin and my sin, somebody had to die. Before Jesus came, they watched animals die because of their sin. That's how serious it is. And then when Jesus died, the sinless one, the wages of sin is death for somebody to pay the price of our sin. Somebody had to die, and it had to be somebody without sin. And that only somebody was Jesus. 
who's the prophet, priest, and king. And if you don't know Jesus, you have no hope. Would you bow your heads with me? For those of you who don't know Jesus, don't take my word for it. You read God's word. Just read it for yourself. But folks, if you don't know Christ right now, here's how you can give your life to him. You first have to admit, confess, I am a sinner separated from you, God. So God, I ask you to forgive me right now of my sin. My sin is serious, God, I know that. So many people take it so lightly. Lord, I know it's serious. And Lord, I I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. He he was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. And, And when he went to the cross, God, I believe you put my sin on him. He atoned. He paid for it. I believe he rose again, conquering death. And I place my faith and trust in Jesus right now. I lift up those, Lord, who need to give their life to Christ. Whether they're watching online or on television, if they're here, they need to give their life to Jesus. It's the only hope. I pray for those that need a church. If this is the place you want them to come, then God, I pray you'll bring them. If you, I pray for those that need to be baptized. They've been washed clean because of Jesus. And they need to stand publicly and say with unashamedly I am a follower a believer in Christ I want to follow him and I'm not ashamed to let people know Lord if they need a church if this is the place you want them to come you send them but I pray for those now that need to make commitments to you if you're watching online you hit that connect button if you're here in the room you take that little card in the seat pocket in front of you and there's a place that indicates your decision today. I want to follow Jesus. I want to join. I want whatever it might be. You can write it in. If you'll drop those in the boxes as you leave, we'll call you on the telephone. And if you are watching online and you hit that connect button, somebody will help you right now. They will. So Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the record, the written history. Thank you for the prophecies that tell us who you are. We pray that people will be drawn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.